Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So welcome and enjoy. Today we have with us um, Sister Zainab Tawanga. Tawanga. Okay. And with me is Zahir interviewing as well. We haven't seen you in a while. So did you know Zainab's surname? Taonga is my name okay. and Chiro is my surname. That means thank you. I learned that over here. It's like gratitude all that. Gratitude, yes. My paternal grandmother gave me that name. Oh, yes. So we're going to just go right into it and ask who is Zainab? Wow. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh to all the listeners. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, wow, that's such a broad question. I I often struggle putting myself. I don't think anyone can use like one word or a phrase to describe who they are. But um, I'd simply say I think I I'd like to describe myself as somebody who, Alhamdulillah, has been blessed with so much love by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and I'm just simply just trying to spread a lot of that into the world. Yeah, I'm just trying to do my part, I'm trying to leave it a better place than I found it. That's Zainab. So if you see me anyway, just say hi. <laughs> um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, your childhood. Originally, you said you are. So I was born in Zambia. It's a country in Southern Africa, um, just above Zimbabwe, to Robert Rashid Chira and Habiba Martha Viziwe Chira. Um, I have four siblings, three siblings, sorry. And uh, I moved to South Africa when I was eight years old with my parents and my siblings. And yeah, so I've been living here. We, we relocated to Peter Maritzburg in okay. KZN. That's where I've essentially grown up. I went to, um, I was in grade four when I arrived. So I went to Islamia Muslim school there. Um, that was my primary school. And then my high school was, uh, uh, I went to Maritzburg Muslim School for Girls. Amazing, amazing place, amazing experience, amazing teachers who have just really contributed tremendously to my growth and just a lot of learning. And then I went to Rhodes University. That's where I did my BA in legal theory and geography. I was in Gramstown. Again, phenomenal people, environment. And yeah, I found myself at Medina back in 2017. Um, I did also the Dean program there for a year. And I just kept on bad bit and I decided to stay here. I just, yeah, I, I met amazing people here in Cape Town and just really as a woman as well in terms of like access to learning the Dean and there's just so much that the town offers. As a young Muslim person and being open to this new world of Islamic scholarship, it's just blew my mind. Um, it, has, it had always been a dua that, you know, that, that Allah grants me the opportunity really to to learn his dear and to seek, you know, the knowledge. I mean, I already had been seeking knowledge in general, but specifically also as well in terms of, you know, the dean and, you know, itself in terms of like the Quran and Hadith and, and, that, and, also, and also being guided by people who, you know, who have, who have dedicated their lives to, to, to studying this beautiful dean. So, yeah, alhamdulillah, and I find, I find myself at UCT, but um, that doesn't mean I'm defined by my education, but yes. it's just a, an yes, easy way of, yeah, of tracking my journey. So, so if I could... What did you say? BA legal theory and geography. And geography, yes. I've never heard that before. I'm, I'm being very honest with <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, so, yeah. So maybe tell me what that is. That's my first question. Sure. And then I'll follow it up with a second one after that. So. Okay. 
So, yeah, as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, going back to before I started preschool, my, um, I was just thinking this afternoon, my uncle, Uncle Yusuf Mbeba, he's the one who taught me how to write my name and just he'd teach me the first nasheed i ever heard he would sing sing it to me in tumbuka my mother tongue and translate it into english and uh, really i think i definitely have to also just like on him in terms of he really like helped in terms of grow that love for allah and this is dean so anyway and then he told me you know zainab you know looking at how you are what do you want to be when you grow up and this and i'm like i don't know i was like four or three i'm very hazy i don't know how old i was but all i know i wasn't in school yet and then he's like, you should be a lawyer. And I'm like, what is that? And I think we were watching a, a TV program or something. And he told me, like, do you see that person? You know, like, you know, this is this is what they do. You know, if you, you need, you're going to be a chain maker, you're going to try and, you, can, you, you know, you should do something into the world, create an impact, a change in the world. And I think this is a career path that would be great for you. And I was like, wow, really? People can do that? And yeah, and so... That's what I've always said. You know, um, I'm going to be a lawyer, and I think it just translates into my personality as well. I'm fascinated by society, people. Um, why do people behave the way they do? And I've come to learn that rules really, and law plays a huge role in that, and regulating that, and also in terms of like just um, organizing society. So when I went to Rhodes, initially I just wanted to study law, and they don't have a straightforward like LB program. You have to do like an undergraduate degree and then do with some law, with some LB um, courses, and then you do, and then you, you you graduate with your undergrad and then you do your two years of LB to complete it up. So long journey. <laughs> I started off doing a BSOC side my first year, still doing legal theory. That was my major in anthropology, and then um, did I dabbled in anthropology and politics and English as well in my first year. Second year, I was bored. It felt like redundant. Classes were just so redundant. I then moved to to a BSc in legal theory and environmental science in my second year. I was trying to find my way, trying to find where it is that I, you know. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to do law. But it's always been important to me that I enjoy what I do because I feel like it, it, it really informs your why. Your why is important in life. Um, and if you're not passionate about what you do, it's very difficult for you to be disciplined and to stick it through and to do and to hold yourself accountable. Um, eventually, I ended up um, just changing my whole degree due to a lot of logistics. Just doing a BA in legal theory, I completed. My, it, I didn't change my majors per se, but just the name essentially. Mm-hmm. And I ended up um, graduating with a BA in legal theory and geography. I'm, I have varied interests, so the science and the law just really helped me balance me as a human being. And, and I loved it. I loved the journey, the trajectory. It was amazing. So you're currently at UCT now? Yes. What are you doing at the moment? I'm doing my LLB now. The LLB yes. now. Okay. Right. So, interesting question, Aisha. Not a question to you, it's a statement to you, but it's actually a question for you. In recent weeks, we've had a few young ladies, professionals, academics, so to speak. But it seems that they're, always, they're also prioritizing the dean, uh, which is quite refreshing. Um, what's your take on that? Uh, uh, Muslim females, educated, changing the narrative with how they approaching uh, Islam, in fact. Mm-hmm. And maybe even like um, with tying to that, your your time at Medina Institute and mm-hmm. how they contributed. I can't help. I think I think it starts with our moms. I'd like to think, but well, for me anyway, you know, even in Islam, it says you know uh, every child's first madrasa is you know a mother's lap, and Alhamdulillah, I, I, both my parents really just really nurtured that love for Allah and for for His Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and just you know the Dean and um, growing up in Zambia where we're a small minority and being particularly being a Black Zambian Muslim person, it was a very rare thing. 
I remember in preschool walking back from Madras at four o'clock with my small white abaya and my small white burqa, and the kids would be screaming, "Muhammad, Muhammad!" and they'll be laughing. You know, <laughs> it was. It wasn't. I don't think it was like the one. Taunt, it was a taunt, but also it was just like the fun and hilarious, and they were confused, and you know. But anyway, I think with that really and just the Madras the environment at Hamdi, my parents raised me in. A, in a very conscious environment of Islam, alhamdulillah, that's grounded me. And so growing up, there was never a separation between my Islam and who I was. So, you know, going back to the beginning of the interview, my purpose cannot be fulfilled without me fulfilling as well my, my deen. And that, you know, and going back to the first ayah that was revealed, Iqra, you know, and seeking that and seeking all forms of knowledge. So I think that's what we're all just coming for. I think we're giving more, we're being given more opportunities. That's, I don't think it's, it's anything new. Uh, I've had this conversation at Medina with a fellow of my female or fellow, fellow colleagues, student colleagues. And, you know, we talked about how we always wonder, like, why don't we ever hear a lot about female scholars of which we have so many in our Islamic history, so many female scholars, even now, currently in the world. Um, from sort of very varied reasons, many reasons. Um, obviously, they don't get that much exposure and so forth. That's a whole other conversation. But I think for now, the fact that, you know, places like Medina Institute, places like Darul Naim here, you know, uh, uh, places like the Zahara Institute and so forth, who are, who are giving opportunities to uh, Muslim women, you know, to, 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 to follow this path that you're so blessed, alhamdulillah, and to do this. So I think we're all just grabbing it. All of us make dua for this opportunity, you know, and we just pray that Allah, inshallah, facilitates for us to do that. So. Tell us a little bit about your podcast that you that you are doing. Yes, it's a baby, it's the grain. Okay. And in our first season, we're experimenting. But essentially, um, um, one of the co-founders of Mkutano podcast, African podcast. We it's uh it's myself and a couple of other students at UCT from different um departments. We we're not friends. I only know the one guy, he's like a friend of a friend. And we just connected through our love of literature, of reading and particularly of African literature. As 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 a young black Muslim woman, I've always been interested and very particular about representation, the importance of representation. <laughs> And because I love literature and reading, I've always loved like being able to read a book and being able to relate to characters in a book. Um, that has just, I think that has also uh, helped me in my journey. So I, I think we wanted to just create more awareness and platforms where we discuss this and give exposure to authors who are writing African literature. And also just breaking down what is African literature because I don't think none of us knew exactly what that meant. Does it just mean that because you're African, then whatever you write is African literature? Is it even a genre? I don't think so. But you know, that's a whole other conversation. So check out Amputan Afri- um, African Podcast. Uh, we're in season one. We're discussing essentially the background, talking to publishers, and so forth, people behind the teams, a bit of some, some authors and so forth. Um, and yeah, and we're about to close up season one. So just have a look at that. We also have a, a, lit, um, a literature review, which I wrote on uh, Kanicha Muhammad. She's a Cape Malay Muslim woman here, uh, based here in the Western Cape. Mm-hmm. She wrote a book called um, Call to Song, an amazing, amazing, amazing piece of work. Um, Kanicha Muhammad is the name. Please pick it up at your local bookstore. <laughs> amazing. Um, as of recent weeks, um, there's been, I know one of your passions, and speaking about one of them, um, is the gender-based violence mm-hmm. issues and yes. those things going forward. How did you, how did that become a passion of yours? Um, I think you know, being a woman growing up in the world, 
even more so in South Africa, you cannot help but identify with the with the current conversations that we've been having. It's not an episode. It's not a once-off thing. It's 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 our our lives. All of all, you can talk to any woman, ask any woman, and they'll tell you about the numerous encounters of violence that is constantly perpetrated towards women. And for me, as somebody who, as, as being a Muslim, you know, and you know, and the fact that my deen propagates peace and salam, you know, and so forth, um, any form of violence or disturbance of peace. Be- it becomes my duty to speak out against it and to stand for the hack and particularly I believe personally that it's, it's obligatory for me if I have any form of a voice or a platform that I should speak out against this we cannot continue it we cannot con- we cannot continue as normal um we are in a crisis it's not even it's not a new thing it's always been there we're tired we're being killed we don't want to be raised yeah and everybody listening right now I think all of us let's check ourselves check those around us. Uh, men in particular be accountable there's nobody who's exempt from this there violence starts from a micro from from a micro level from small aggressions microaggressions to macro aggressions we're not just talking about serial killers or violent rapists and um or, or you know women beaters no it starts starting from the home starting with the relationships with your siblings with your sisters with your friends with your you know with your partner at work everywhere I think as women we're doing we're doing a lot. There's nothing more we can do that that we're not doing already. And if anything, we're doing more than we should be doing. For me, I think it's important that we speak to perpetrators, and that is men. Particularly since we're talking right now, the focus is the spotlight is on violence against women. I acknowledge that violence does happen to you know all people from all genders and so forth. But in particular, we're looking at gender-based violence against women. You know, um, so I think men are the ones supposed to be doing things. It's not us. How can a victim be told that you know, we can't feel? I'm a victim. You're a victim. Um, how do how do we how do men view men need to question themselves? How do they view women in relation to themselves, and what informs that view in particular? And how is it that in their interactions with women? Can they truly say that they are just in, the, in, in, in their engagements? Do they interact on a, from, on a level, on a platform of you're a human being and, and, and you know you're, you, you have a right to dignity and have to respect your dignity in the same manner that my dignity is always respected and you know it's always maintained? It's, it needs serious interrogation. Serious interrogation. You know, we're tired of the rhetoric of shouting, screaming. We're tired of crying. It's, 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 it's exhausting. It's obvious at a point, you know, I could say sometimes it feels like it doesn't mean a, doesn't mean a thing. It's, it's serious interrogation amongst men, conversations within themselves. And you cannot say, I'm, I'm the exempt one, I'm the exemplary, because we are, I am very sure you have people around you who you see constantly perpetuating violence and you don't speak up about it. Because why? You don't get involved in other men's businesses, you know? So I think from a micro level, that's why I can speak of this conversation. So this uh, question, you know, requires a lot of time to go into depth. Yeah. But for now, all I can say is that personal introspection and accountability. Mm-hmm. And particularly in terms of government and leadership and even my profession that I want to enter, the legal profession, we need to seriously look at in terms of the law and how how perpetrators are comfortable in knowing that they can get away with what they do. This conversation about gender-based violence and, uh, has been around for years. Uh, some, I'm, I'm an optimist by, by nature. But some people, may, I mean, I've been hearing over the past week, it's not going to change, it's been entrenched in our society and our mindsets. So let me put it to this way. Mm-hmm. Five years time. Yes. I mean, this big campaign is at the moment. Let's yes. look forward five years time. Yes. If we look back five years time to today, 
what do you think would be progress or success mm-hmm. coming out of this current narrative? Yes. What would you like to maybe see in the next few years as a okay. tangible change? Or yes. I'm encouraged by by when I see a lot of initiatives and programs, people have been doing work, in, you know, uh, who have been doing work with this in this particular. Um, with this particular issue in society, um, there's an organization that I work with, um, the Center for Peace and Nonviolence, which is also part of Medina Institute, that have an annual uh, Orange the World. It's called the Orange the World Youth Summit. And it essentially brings together high school learners from all over the Western Cape, as much as possible, as many, from as many schools as possible. And you bring young people to the summit. And I've been astounded at... At the hope that lies in these young people, because I feel like you know people always say that you know there's um, children are the future, and and really uh, having such platforms <coughs> and, and and moments where we talk about this conversation because they, the theme is gen is is the fight creating awareness against gender based violence, and see, and for me my hope in five years in terms of all the young people that we've worked with over the four um, over the three uh, annual summits that we've had that they will enter society and they will impact change, you know. Um, I think continuing work that that, that this, this organization, other organizations across the board that are doing, for me, my hope is that it slowly but surely will start changing mindsets. It's very difficult to change mindsets of adults, but in terms of our young people, I think it gives me a lot of hope. That and, and we can see that in terms of the responses for across universities in South Africa over the past two weeks. You know, standing up to authority and saying, no, no we cannot continue, it, it is not normal. Students have really shown us time and time again over the past five, seven years that they are invested in, in, in changing society and, you know, they are optimists and that we want to create a change. And I'm excited to see these young individuals get into society and really do bigger things, you know. So uh, for me, my hope is just really seeing where these students and these young people are going to go. Zambia recently cancelled the football match against yes, South Africa. Yes, yes, yes. It's so you know where I'm heading with that now. Yes, uh, we're, we're, we're going to take the conversation. <laughs> the next part of your uh-huh. your blurb on our, on, yes. our, on our poster was gender-based violence, oh. xenophobia. Yes, xenophobia. So, so we don't hold any grudges against <laughs> cancellation, but maybe let's talk about xenophobia. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it just happens to be you. You are from Zambia. Yeah. No, um, thank you. Thank you again um, for allowing me to speak on this. This is a very personal struggle as well, particularly because I am, like I mentioned at the beginning of this seating, that I am an immigrant from Zambia. And it really breaks my heart because, you know, what could... Uh, I really feel like the, 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 the problem is with how particularly African migrants are seen and viewed by leadership and the rhetoric that has been passed, that has been um, that has been created over a long time around African migrants, is the reason why we are where we are today. You know, um, you know, because when we, when I when I think of the the survey rhetorics and the reasoning behind the xenophobic attacks of saying that you know foreigners are taking are stealing jobs, taking jobs, <laughs> and that you know foreigners are the ones who are ste- um, selling drugs to our or to young people and so forth. And indeed, there are foreign nationals who are involved in this. And this is an issue of crime. That's what it is. It's not an issue of of, of immigration uh, of immigration or that we cannot regulate. And which and even I know there's you know people are talking about the government needs to be to have more strict immigration laws and so forth i think that that's one of the biggest problems the south african government doesn't have serious proper policies and they've never they haven't thought beyond um 
how to deal with mass economic migrants from the African continent in particular. And that is why we find ourselves where we are today, you know, and because there also hasn't been South Africa during apartheid in particular was closed off from other countries, from particular from other African countries. And after nineteen ninety four, you had an influx of people from other African countries, and they are not, they, and they are, they are seen as the other, the different. We don't know these people, and and so as human beings, the, the moment we see somebody who's different, we are afraid and we go on the defense, and you know that's when a whole lot of misconceptions and attack people attack each other. I think we really need to do more in terms of educating each other about who we are. I mean, so many, so many times growing up, I'd say, oh, I'm from Zambia, people wouldn't know where that country is. And I'd be shocked, you know, because, I mean, we're, 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 we're neighbors. We're, 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 for me, growing up, I always knew about South Africa. We have a shared history, a very close shared history, a very intimate shared history, you know. Um, Zambian lives were fought uh, during apartheid as well in terms of in, in their bed, in our bed, to support this, the South African cause and movement. And that is not a reason for, for, for us to, to, to say, oh, don't kill us because we helped you during apartheid. No, don't kill us simply because we're human. If you're going to say that they are criminals, this is a crime issue, it means the South African police services and the government needs to ha- crack, have a crackdown on, on, on criminality and all forms of crime. You know, if this is an issue of economics and unemployment, it means it's an issue in terms of the, our, our economic, our, our economic policies and how our economic structures are, are, um, are designed, uh, and and the addressing uh, addressing disadvantaged communities and historical disadvantage. And why is it that Black South Africans in particular find themselves in the situation that they are in? So I think this conversation is bigger than us, and people tend to to minimize it and to to to, to really just. Um, I, I really, I think we need to know. We need to. We need at the at the base and the foundation. We we need to learn more about each other, and and I think at the end of the day, we will all have the same conversation. You ask any migrant, and they will tell you we we, we any many migrant who's here generally to be to, to also commit as an African, but not you. You shouldn't be if you are here to come and commit crime, then you have no right. To, you have no. Yeah, this is no place for you. You know what I mean. Yeah. But there's a lot of migrants here. Who are here to contribute and who co- contribute to this economy? I can think on the top of my hand of amazing people that have done amazing contribution contribution to South Africa, from your uh, Bismutari in terms of the South African rugby team, um, to your Ray Pires, you know, a, a legendary musician in South Africa, to you know, I mean, Zambian soccer players who have come here and have entertained us, you know, Collins Mbesuma. Chansa, your knowledge msona. I mean, I can go on when it comes to football and things like that. They have really, you know, the, any Pirates, Kings, the Chiefs fans, Swallows, Bloemfontein, Celtic, you know, we know these people. They have contributed to the passion of this country and have contributed to entertainment on Saturday. So, so, so I like the yeah. fact that I like football. Oh, I mean, fine. <laughs> you know that by now. Now you're mentioning all these yes, things. Yes. And, and for me, what perplexes me is the two things you mentioned one is they came they come here to steal our jobs that's mm. the one narrative the other one is jealousy mm. for some reason uh, yeah now education plays a big part in and i'm not talking just school education mm-hmm. just talking about education generally like mm-hmm. you said earlier mother is the first madrasa mm-hmm. so whether you're muslim or non-muslim mm-hmm. the mother is the first point of education yes. for for any society yes. Father as well, yes, definitely. support, family, community. Mm-hmm. Does the solution lie with a change in policies from, from government? Mm-hmm. Or do we start in our living rooms? In our living rooms. It would be great if we could start in our living rooms. But the problem lies in that our own parents, parents also have 
uninformed and have very warped ideas and notions of other Africans, you know, other particularly black Africans. Um, because in terms of the xenophobia, it's very targeted to black African migrants. So it starts there. And I think in terms of like what we watch and what is shown to us on television and so forth in our popular soapies, where you're always shown as whenever you see a character who's a foreign national, they are oftentimes a criminal or they, you know, have, um, don't have papers and so forth. Very rarely will we be seen, will be shown, you know, positive. Uh, pictures of, of, of African, black African migrants. And I think it starts, so from all work sectors, I guess you could say, in terms of whether it's from the creative industry, from sports, um, from government in and of itself, I think it starts there. And I've seen a, a, a picture, a video on, Inst- on Instagram of South African musicians coming together and speaking up, I guess, which, you know, big ups to, 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 to them are using their platform or, as artists to come up to be like, look, we collaborate with our fellow Africans, uh, you know, all the time and we're entertaining and so forth. So. Now, you know what's yeah. frustrating out of this uh, situation as well is we all go to service stations, petrol stations, and you, mm. the guys that pull our petrol tanks up, mm. most of them are African mm. migrants. Mm. You know what? The sad thing is, if you actually just talk to them, mm-hmm. you get doctors, you get engineers, yes. you get academics, yes. you get artisans, and I feel it's just such a waste of potential mm-hmm. um, in terms of how they could possibly build out communities as well yes. society mm-hmm. so that's a, that's a frustrating part would you as a continent we are still it would be a lie to say that we have recovered from colonialism and so forth. And, and and we take also ownership because of our leaders have failed us post-colonialism our leaders have failed us they have failed their people and that's how you find a lot of african migrants all over the world not just in south africa but all over the world in the diaspora we have lost huge potential like you said you know people we have so many problems in africa and you find that we keep we keep turning and looking to the west for solutions as though we don't have people who have the means and the resources and and who can not not necessarily the means and certain resources but who have the capacity intellectually in terms of human uh resource to impact change and to change and to turn around our societies and and to, to truly um realize our potentials as, as a continent as an economic giant on the, you know in the, on, on the world and that's where it comes back to i think to say that it's only the responsibility of the South African government personally for me i think that is a very unfair thing i think it goes back to people where people have come from as well our governments i know like you know from all from other african countries really they have failed us uh, you know, people have just enriched themselves and we do not we have elections oftentimes are uh, they, 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 they are rigged and they are, they are compromised and so forth. There's no accountability, genocide, civil wars, divide and conquer all over all over the show for, for various reasons. I think this is a question that as a content we need to ask ourselves to be like, uh, and, and, and again, once again, I'm, uh, I am encouraged that I have met amazing young African people who have great visions for this continent, you know, and I like to believe, I mean, platforms such as this as well you know the fact that you know this is something that you guys created accidental muslims where we find ourselves i mean you all the way from south africa and i'm all the way from zambia that you know allah made it such that we meet and have this conversation together this is i think if we could build come together more and build i'm i cannot begin to imagine where we would see ourselves as a continent as a child, as a young child, for you, we used to call it stories of the prophet, Mereza. And uh, it was just a story, really. 
I mean, you'd learn about, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu this is what happened and so forth. And for you, you'll just be learning, oh, this is what happened. Okay, I need to know you memorize and you regurgitate, you write exams, you get a stellar, you get an award, and that's that. But you don't really, you don't really do, like, you don't, you know, you don't do tadabbur on the sira itself and the beauty of it on that moment. And Alhamdulillah, Zakal again for this moment of talking about um, my migration. I can't help but think about when Nabi, uh, oh, sorry, when, when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam arrived in Medina, you know, immediately, you know, there were the Ansar of Medina who were there to welcome the Muhajirin. And uh, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam paired people up. There's huge symbolism in that. You know, that it's important that when you have, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that, and then I'll, let me just bring something else and then I'll bring it back together. And then just talking about the importance of, of guests in Islam. You know, how as a Muslim, you know, you have a, they, they, they have a right over you, how you, there's huge emphasis on hospitality. You know, the, 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 that pairing that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that, you know, you, you, you act as protectors and you work together. And the Ansar welcomed them with open arms and they worked together and they built them. And that is how we have the Mubarak city of Medina, Munawara, you know, where we go back there and, 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 and we learn so much. And so for us, I think to go back and to just ask ourselves whenever we encounter migrants, why are we selective as to who we open our arms to and who we do not open our arms to? I, I go back to a conversation I've had recently, my fellow um, South African friends, of which I South Africa is home for me. I've spent more than more than half my uh, my, my life here, and you know, in and in South African tourism adverts, you see, you know, South Africa, you know, it's, it's a rainbow nation, and you know, South Africans are warm and they're friendly and so forth. And I remember saying. As an African migrant, I've never felt welcomed. I've never felt this warm and friendliness that you talk about. You know, when 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 my when when my migrant status is put in the forefront as a black migrant, and I I've spoken to many other other black migrants. Very rarely do we, more more often than not, we often feel fear. You know, and uh, and so for me, my question is, you're African, I'm African. Where is the bunch that is being? Why is it was selective in terms of only showing this warmness to 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 Western or European migrants only? Doesn't that just perpetuate this violence? Almost like it's almost it's not only a violence towards other African migrants, but it's also a violence as to a black South African person as well to yourself, as to yourself. Hey, I think that's a conversation that we need to have in our own communities and in our own circles and really look at that and take responsibility. Lead, leaders in our community, in our country, who have made very disturbing, very dangerous remarks, very xenophobic remarks. You, you, you know, you hold a, a huge role and a huge, a huge role. You need to be responsible. You need to do better. And as Muslims, we all know our Muslim community here is very, very diverse. Most African, uh, the South African, Black South African Muslim population is growing, mashallah, you know, by the desert. Alhamdulillah, it's amazing whenever I see that. But most of the time, for the longest time, historically, in terms of the Muslim community, a lot of the Black Muslims have been migrant Muslims. You know, and when we talk about in terms of relations between black migrant Muslims and your genuine, whether it's your Cape Malay or, or sub, um, whether it's whether it's your Indian or Pakistani Muslim community in South Africa, very tense uh, relations, very almost like master subservient relations. We have taken economics and used that also uh, economics to dictate how we also relate to each other in terms of the dean space in the masjid. You know, in the south, when you when you're in the masjid about to make salah, the, the imam will often say, you know, uh, stand up, you know, st- stretching the softs, toe to toe, shoulder to shoulder. Subhanallah, where do we hear that? Where do we hear that? 
that just before you're about to make salah, before you're about to have that moment with your Allah, that you're told again, even in that moment you're asked, as much as it is solitary, but you're also asked to unite. And yet you have people all of a sudden shifting, not wanting to go and fill us off because why wow, there's a black brother there, there's a black sister there, and I don't want to stand you, or oh, you smell, or oh, you, you know, these are the remarks. I have a 15, 16 year old brother who tells me this is, this is almost his daily experience, you know, in masters. And, and that breaks my heart because now what do you do to a young person's perception of, 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 of the masjid experience? The moments where you'd be like, you know what, I'd rather not go to the masjid and just make my salah here. Yeah. And it's like, no, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, there's mustawab when you go and make salah in Jamaat, but it's just like, I don't like it. I, I'm, I, I'm, I just feel it's not comfortable. And what, what can I say? What can I tell him otherwise? Do you understand? So I think really as Muslims as well, in terms of our own xenophobia, it's not a thing that we just see. It doesn't, doesn't mean that xenophobic attacks only happen when people shoot and throw trucks and it's what we see in videos. But let us um, introspect in our own communal spaces, how we interact with each other. Fine enough. Just take a moment to pause here. <laughs> At least we have something I, else to say. I just, I think it's very important. We, we don't always, because we speak about it. Um, and it's often with it with this. It's often we speak about without the actual people yes. speaking about yes, yes. Um, and we speak forward rather than without the inclusivity. Mm-hmm. So it's so important uh, this conversation happen. I'm like you can see, <laughs> yeah. um, emotional because like I think we don't consider the hurt and the what it actually causes. It does. It does. Yes. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that. It's a very it's a very difficult thing to say, but I know way too many young Muslim migrant people who have lost their way in the deen as well because they just feel like I don't I don't want to be part of of a community that my simply my existence is seen as almost like a plague. Like I you know it's it's, it's I am delegitimized as a human being and so forth, and especially as something as 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 uh, delicate as faith for young people you know there's a lot of things that, are, that we're fighting that we're struggling with and when you go into that one space in the masjid where you seek solace where you seek support and strength renewal rejuvenation you know spiritual rejuvenation where you where you're told you know you're an ummah you know you what you love for yourself you love for your brother or your sister and so forth we you know where your quranic ayah saying that allah only judges uh human beings known for by their taqwa and that's it and it's just like and so, you know, so especially as young people again who don't necessarily have have had have be, have be had the opportunity to truly understand that people are not necessarily a reflection of the and which I don't like that narrative because it, it it makes people absolve themselves of taking responsibility of their actions. That is not an excuse. That thing of don't judge Muslims because Muslims are not a reflection of the you know. Astaghfirullah, we should be ashamed of ourselves if we should be saying that. You, 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 if you have the shahada, you should be reflecting that. At all times, including myself. My favorite surah is Ar-Rahman. It just always, um, uh, ayahs are tricky, depends on the moment. I think yeah. for me, just all of it, any ayah will speak to you depending on where you are and what you're going through. But in terms of surahs, I think I'll just narrow down the best I can do is surahs Ar-Rahman. For me, Ar-Rahman really, it, it, it has often helped me in terms of my engagement with myself, with Others and even in terms of how my relationship is with Allah, first and foremost. So, yeah, it's just so many lessons to learn of gratitude, of constant reminder of Allah's that you know we're all sinners, 
all of us we're all just trying and, and sometimes you can feel the just point and be like i don't even why am i going to this musala i feel like a hypocrite but you know i'm constantly reminded that if for as moment I, for as long as i have breath i'm drawing breath allah will always be there to 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 to, to forgive me and there's always a, a second chance and a third chance and, and you know there's always a new chance so Um, okay. But just as your as the final question, um, if this was your you know last piece of advice or final words, what did that be? Do you want to say? Okay, my last piece of advice would be find your why in life. That is so important. Your why isn't your career. <laughs> Let's get that straight. Your why isn't even necessarily your role. Whether and a lot of women can do this motherhood and so forth. It's amazing. It's it's something to admire. But as a human being, what is your why? I think it's important to find that and uh, continue learning your learning about yourself. Confront who you are. And as as a Muslim, your why cannot not be tied in to Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It cannot. So. You know, in the words of what 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 led me to my journey now, um, I was watching a YouTube video and I was told that I was, uh, you know, when I heard some a sheikh a sheikh was was asked how how do you, how do you feel every every time you say the name Nabi sallallahu alaihi Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and I was it it changed my life. It was just it just used to be a word. I never felt love in my heart. I never felt it. Every you just use this word, and for us until you feel that love, until it becomes a thing. Continue seeking that. That is for me. That is my why. So yeah, find your why. Sure. 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 Thank you. <laughs> we certainly know why we invited you this year. This evening. Thank um, you so much for. Thank you for amazing. honoring our invite and keep us in your doors. I mean, I mean, all the best to you and your also. projects and. I mean. um, yeah. Go Zambia. <laughs> Go Africa. <laughs> So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum. نزعت أسرار قلبي وجئت ألقي أسايا وأشتكي طي صدري دربا سحيق العطايا به بدأت ولكن لم أدري ما منتهايا لم أدري يأسي فيه ولا عرفت هدايا ولا عرفت ظلامي ولا عرفت ضحايا ولا لغيرك دوا يا رب يوما ندايا يا